Hey everyone, thanks again so much. Eugene Cho here. What a pleasure and a joy to join you at Rain City Church. Let me first share one thing. We'll read scripture and then we'll dive into this topic about politics and racism. I'm so encouraged that your church and your leadership, you're talking about politics. Sometimes in the church bubble, there are folks that will push back and they'll say, we shouldn't be talking about politics at all. And here's the deal, if we're not talking about this imperfectly or in messy ways, we're actually abdicating discipleship to others to politicians, to pundits, to cable news. And so it is good that your church and your leadership, you're having this precise conversation. Now, having said that, if you have your Bibles with you, would you open it, turn it on to John chapter four, and we're gonna read verses one to 10. John chapter four, verses one to 10. Listen now for God's word. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, it was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Friends, I wanna read verse four once more and focus our talk today on that verse. It goes like this, verse four, now he, referring to Jesus, now Jesus, had to go through Samaria. It's quite possible that at some point you may have heard this story about Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. It's considered by pastors and theologians as an example of a transcendent story, meaning that the larger culture, they have some sort of broken, imperfect information about the story about Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. There are numerous examples in scripture that fall in this category of transcendent stories, Noah's Ark, the birth of Jesus. I have neighbors who aren't Christians or churchgoers that have heard these stories. Now that's good, but it's also a challenge. It's good because you have some information about this story. The challenge is as I read this passage, it's very possible that for some of you who are familiar with the story, you actually preached my sermon to yourself before me actually preaching it. And so I actually want to encourage you, stay focused, lean in for the next 13, 14 minutes as we learn about how this passage happens to be more scandalous, more radical, 
more challenging than you can imagine, especially as we're talking about this juxtaposition, this challenge of faith and racism, politics and racism. Now, let's talk about this story. I want you to walk away with at least three big picture understandings of the story. When you look at the back of your respective Bibles, there's a map. And in this map called the Holy Lands, Jesus and the disciples, they're right now in the bottom section of that land. And scripture tells us that they wanna head up north. Now, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to know that the quickest way from one point to another point is simply a straight line. Point A to point B. The problem was during the time of Jesus and actually centuries before Jesus, people as they traveled north and south and vice versa, they actually didn't go on a straight line because in the middle of that land from Judea to Galilee, it was occupied by a land by a group of people called Samaritans. And people actually traveled east, crossing the Jordan River, and scholars tell us that that journey actually took about 3.5 times longer because they went in a long, circuitous route. Why? Well, it wasn't very efficient travel, but they did that because they needed to avoid these group of people called Samaritans. Now, this is really important. I'm convinced, even though it's not recorded in the scriptures, that when Jesus told his disciples, we're going to go through Samaria, I'm convinced the disciples pushed back and said, are you crazy? Respectfully, Jesus, are you stupid? Do you not understand Judeo, Samaritan, political, social, racial context? Do you know that it's actually dangerous to walk through Samaria? And the reason why it became dangerous, it actually goes back all the way to 1 Kings chapter 17 or 2 Kings chapter 17, where conflict brews between Samaritans and the Jewish people. You see, Samaritans were actually considered half-breeds. They were considered different. They were considered unpure, unclean. And as a result, they were seen again and again as inferior, less than human people. So as a result, there were policies and ways of life and cultural systems that were put into place to somehow denigrate this group of people called Samaritans. And so as a result, Samaritans would push back and it became increasingly dangerous for people of the Jewish descent to walk through Samaria. This is why, verse four, listen again, now, he had to go through Samaria. I want you to realize that Jesus doesn't have to do anything. He's Jesus. In other words, everything that Jesus does has purpose and intent and reason behind it. And so in walking through Samaria, this walking in itself, I believe, happens to be one of Jesus's most scandalous, most challenging teachings. It's not just 
a fuzzy, warm conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. Clearly, that's that as well. But there's actually something more. Three things about the Samaritan woman. We know that she was a woman and that in itself she was lesser than. We know that she was a person of somewhat of a suspect or suspicious character, according at least to this particular reading of scripture, and as a result, she was ostracized and marginalized. But the fact that she was a Samaritan, that in itself adds up to three strikes. So what can we learn from the story? Number one is that it's a story about dehumanization. It might sound overly simplistic, but I truly believe that at the core and the crux of sin that we commit with one another or against other people, at the core of it, it's because of this thing called dehumanization. When we see someone as lesser than, that's the reason why as we're talking about politics today, and during this election season, it has to be one of the primary things that you are exploring and studying and praying through and processing as you cast your vote. Not just for national elections, but think about our state elections. Think about our local elections. Those things matter, if not more, than our national politics as well. Again, 2 Kings 17, they were considered as unclean, inferior, half-breeds, contaminated, lesser than, and it just kept growing after generation, after generation, after generation. Now, it's not just a story about Jews and Samaritans. When you look throughout history, we see so many examples of human beings that are dehumanized. Let me just give you a little, small, short litany. The Nazis referred to Jews as rats. That's an example of dehumanization. 26, 27 years after the horrific Rwandan genocide, Hutus called Tutsis cockroaches, which led to over 800,000 minority Tutsi groups to be slaughtered during that genocide. Enslaved African-Americans in this country have been historically and even today compared to apes or monkeys. Radical monks call Rohingya minority groups today in Burma and Bangladesh simply as animals. Friends, I want you to realize that as we're speaking about racism and we'll talk about policies and structure, but words matter because words form or inform worldviews. Worldview informs hearts combined. They form the way that we interact and intersect with other people. Here's the second thing, relationships matter. After the horrific death of Michael Brown in Ferguson, there was some sociological studies done about the nature of relationships in the United States. It's quite telling. And I know surveys are incomplete, but according to this one survey, they began to ask African-Americans, Caucasian-Americans, Asian-Americans, Latino-Americans about the nature of their natural friendships. 
And in this survey, it was quite shocking. For example, in a hundred friend scenario, the average white person has 91 white friends, one black friend, one Latino friend, one Asian friend, one mixed race, other races, and three friends of unknown race. The average black person, on the other hand, has 83 black friends, eight white friends, which makes sense because there are more Caucasians than African Americans in this country, two Latino friends, zero Asian friends. What's up with that? Three mixed race friends, one other race friends, and four friends of unknown race. Here's my point. Here we are talking about politics and race. And when we begin to reduce these conversations to one conversation every four years, or we're talking about something so important to the kingdom of God, to justice, to diversity of God's creation, and yet we don't actually know anyone representing other races, herein lies the problem and tension. I want you to realize that our votes matter. As you've heard from your pastors already, our votes, our political advocacy matters, but when you and I reduce our civic responsibility to one vote every two or four years, we're actually part of the problem. If we believe that politics should have and should inform our views about racism, I actually want to know how you and I live our lives Monday through Saturday. Here's the third thing, and we'll close with this. Hearts need to change, but so must structure and systems. Now, this actually is probably the biggest pushback that I get from other Christians. Because the number one response that I get is, well, Pastor Eugene, as long as our hearts change, then everything will be okay. Yes, but it's also very naive. I'm gonna show you an image in a few seconds. I have to first give you a trigger warning. And I don't like to even use that phrase trigger warning, but this requires a trigger warning. It's a very violent, disturbing, graphic photo. And it's a photo most likely from the 1950s and 60s. And for the longest time, I thought it was from Jim Crow in the South. It actually most likely comes from Portland, Oregon. And it's a picture of Klansmen assembled at a church. And I wanna just give you a warning first. And here's the image. Just take a moment to soak in this picture. And I'm gonna ask the picture be taken off. I don't know about you, every time I see this photo, it is so disturbing. And what disturbs me isn't just the image of all of these Klansmen at the altar of a church, but as you noticed, it's this humongous banner that reads, Jesus saves. My point is this, hearts have to change. But it's also very possible that even as Christians, we might be complicit with racist structures and systems, including the elevation of something called white 
supremacy. It's challenging, but I want, to I want you to realize just because we're theologically on the same page with the words Jesus saves, it doesn't mean that we can't or it absolves us from challenging these systems and structures. Hearts have to change, but I want you to realize broken, sinful people create broken, sinful systems and structures. And as we advocate for hearts to change, it also means that institutional racism, and this is where politics matter. Why? Because politics inform policies that impact people. Let me bring it down a little bit more local. Did you know that in the 1950s and as late as the 1960s, we had racial we had racial restrictive covenants in the larger Seattle area. For example, I live in a neighborhood called Ballard. In Ballard, this is what it reads in certain racial housing covenants. No part of said property hereby conveyed shall ever be used or occupied by any Hebrew or by any person of the Ethiopian, Malay, or any Asiatic race. How about Clyde Hill on the east side? In Clyde Hill, it says, this property shall not be resold, leased, rented, or occupied except to or by persons of the Aryan race. You see why politics matters and why our faith in the kingdom of God has to shape our politics. Some of you might be pushing back and saying, hey, that was in the 1960s. We're in a very different time right now. Let me just give you one story here. A Pennsylvania judge, a judge empowered to uphold the law by the name of Mark Calvarella Jr. Not that long ago, he was sentenced to 20 years in prison in connection to a bribery scandal. Why? He took over $1 million in bribes from developers of juvenile detention centers where they were sending black and brown kids for something called Kids for Cash program. This is why when you vote nationally, state, locally, think, pray, ponder, act upon the convictions about the kingdom of God. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, there is neither Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, but we are one in Christ Jesus. God bless you. Thanks for listening to the Rain City Church podcast. We love that our community exists for so many, not just in the greater Seattle area, but around the world. Please push subscribe and feel free to share our content. And for any more questions or to get more involved, check out our website at raincitychurch.com. We hope to see you to Sunday soon.